Deadwood Soundwell. You have found Dirt Maps, a tributary to The Real War Project, a podcast about the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema. I'm Dr. Aaron Donaldson. In today's episode, I interview Alyssa Ember-Smith, program manager at Roots, Wounds, Words, about the differences between whitewashing and blackwashing media. We discuss conducting research as an undergrad, the legacies of strategic hatred behind white supremacist filmmaking, and the limitations and possibilities posed by blackwashing in response. If you want to find more Dirt Maps, look for The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L War Project, wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Joining me now is Alyssa Ember-Smith, who is a queer black woman with her bachelor's degree in Africana Studies from the College of Worcester. She hails from the unceded native lands of the Potawatomi and Peoria tribes. Fascinated by the art of storytelling and passionate about bettering society for people of color, she is now a program manager for Roots, Wounds, Words, a literary arts revolution to provide affordable literary arts education for any storytellers of color. Alyssa, thank you so much for taking your time to join me today, and welcome to Dirt Maps. Thank you, thank you. It's great to be here. I just want to say I did not know a lot about this organization uh, that you work for before I reached out to you. Um, And I said I do want to give you a chance to plug it at the top if possible. Can you tell me more about it? Because it looks really great. Yeah, RWW is a 501c3 from Brooklyn, New York, uh, for all literary artists of color to receive instruction offered by award-winning BIPOC writers in the fields of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and so much more. Since 2018, RWW has offered free donation-based and low-cost literary arts programming, supporting pedagogy, publication, and performance opportunities. Our faculty has included brilliant literary artists such as Jesmyn Ward, Daniel Jose Older, and we have a talk coming up right now with Kiese Lehman. Hit up rootswoundswords.org to check out our upcoming workshops, writers' retreats, and showcases. Roots, Wounds, Words, .org. We're going to make sure we tip that at the end. It's probably going to dovetail really well from there. The next question we ask uh, is always, can you describe yourself a little bit and your relationship to the research that we're going to be talking about today for our audience? I found your thesis through the College of Worcester that compares blackwashing to whitewashing. Um, that's the research we're going to be talking about today. So you want to give our audience just a little bit of background and some of your association with that research? Yeah, for as long as I can remember, I have been super passionate about Black issues. Like when I was 12, I had to fight my mom not to relax my hair. And growing up in a white dominated suburb, I often struggled with my identity. In the third grade, I was accused of painting my skin because I acted too white to be Black. And those sort of repeated experiences solidified me into this path of research and sort of life philosophy. And as a writer who has been developing my fiction and creative nonfiction since a young age, story and character was something that interested me outside of my schooling. So having both those personal investments deep in the heart of this research was one of the things that really pushed me to get as close to the root of the topic as I could in the allotted time. One of the things that connects your thesis to rww.org is this kind of connection between better storytelling and like just quality of living, just everyday quality of living for people. And this is going to be a theme that we really want to dig into as we go. Um, You wrote an undergraduate senior independent study thesis during your time at the College of Worcester that I found through their open works page. And this is uh, when we were researching a movie called Overlord. Have you seen this movie from 2018? I have not. Uh, I'm not. um, I was going to talk about this a little later. I'm also not a horror buff. So so like I, I, not my genre, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The question I 
Sit You says, this is a horror movie about the Battle of Normandy featuring colorblind casting within the 101st Airborne. I want to start by saying uh, that I think that your paper is just exceptional. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit to our audience a bit about uh, what it was like to write this paper as an undergrad. Not all, but most of the research that we feature on The Real War Project and my other show, The Alien Movie Project, um, is going to come from either some kind of like blog or some kind of peer-reviewed journal or something like that. We have found a few theses that we have talked about. We talked about one for our movie um, on Meituan. Um, and typically when I come across these, they're good. I love them. I really appreciate undergrads who want to write a thesis, but they're not super comprehensive. And yours, I think, does a really good job of reviewing the literature, of characterizing the arguments. Um, and I just want to ask you, like, as an undergrad, what was it like to just go through that process? Yeah, the process was definitely a bit of a struggle for me, I'll be completely honest. Uh, I technically started the project as a junior because Worcester has most degree programs do a prep thesis, which is effectively a shorter version of the one that you read. So you have a half a school year to do that one. Um, so for the senior thesis, which they give a little less than a full school year to complete, I was adapting the original concept to do more in-depth research. And that was right when the pandemic hit. And then George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were murdered. And it was primarily difficult because while part of the thesis is proving that blackwashing doesn't have the same malicious intent as whitewashing, the second section is showing that physical representation is not enough. And it felt like I was spending an entire summer of research and analysis discrediting the little mm -hmm. progress black people have made in film. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's hard because in the public discourse, people will be very blunt, very crass. The people will say it's either all the same or people will say none of it matters. I really think the nuance in your argument shines in this paper. And we're going to dig into it in just a little bit. Another question I like to ask a lot of folks at the top. Can you um, just explain a little bit about why movies in particular are so important, either in terms of how you see them as authors of culture, movies kind of help generate and create culture, or in terms of how they informed like you as an individual? Movies and entertainment media in general are both art and propaganda. That may be the intention, that may not be. Some people do movies just for the sake of the art. Some people do it specifically because they want to tell a story. But because of the priming paradigm, people are more likely to believe something is true of all individuals within a specific category if it sparks an emotional response, which was proven in a study by J. Jared Power et al. To break down the experiment really quickly, they brought in a number of participants and had them interact with a receptionist before a small number of tests. The tests were irrelevant. The receptionist was the test. The receptionist either had long or short hair and a very specific personality trait. So say the long-haired receptionist is short-tempered. After a week, they bring back the same participants and have them interact with a new receptionist with either the same length of hair or a different length of hair. Those that interacted with the new receptionist who had the same length of hair assumed the same personality traits as the first receptionist. Now that was over a week but movies have been saying the same things about black people for over a century. By propagandizing entertainment, movies make our escapism from reality into something that can damage people's lives because people are regularly primed by entertainment to believe it. And I love movies, I love stories, but it's hard as a black woman to escape from reality when so much media attempts to turn you into a monolith and then people buy it. The priming stuff really hit me. It's a conversation I use with a lot of my students. And the example I give is a word search where people will look for active words like jump and leap and run. And people will look for words like um, 
uh, cane or dentures or things like that. And then we will time them as they leave walking down the hall and we can accelerate and decelerate the rate at which they will walk down the hallway based on which condition of words they're searching for. And the propaganda point you make is really important because cinema is lush. It is the the, the richest of real estate. We talk a lot about how Men in Black is something like $16,000 a second. And your example is long hair which is an important thing when it comes to how we see identity. Hair is deeply essential to the politics of identity, but it's not cinematic real estate that we all see, adore, and share. So these stories that we're talking about, particularly the ones coming from the perspectives of settler colonial white supremacy, have a legacy that impacts absolutely everybody in ways that are very hard to explore. And we've said already the public will get very binaristic with this. This paper does not. Um, I dig it. This uh, paper, I think, is pretty important because it's one of the only ones I could find that makes this comparison so explicitly, namely the similarities and differences between whitewashing, which can include practices of minstrelism and blackface, and blackwashing, which is also sometimes called colorblind or raceblind casting. Two terms that I find conflated in very predictable ways, which you detail really well in the paper. Would you like to kind of describe some examples before we look at how they operate? Yeah, so the definition I follow in my thesis for whitewashing is the act of taking a character or person of color in media and replacing them with a white actor. One example of this could be 2013's The Lone Ranger, starring Johnny Depp, who is of European descent, as the indigenous character Tonto. Man who cannot be killed in battle. Something very wrong with that horse. And the definition I use for blackwashing is a traditionally white character being replaced by a black actor specifically. A super recent example of this happened in April of this year, 2022, when DC Comics cast Shope Dirisu, a British Nigerian actor to play the warlock John Constantine, who is a white British man in the comics, in their upcoming HBO show. Each of these, while seemingly the same, we're just going to take a person of a color out, a post-racist might say, and put in a person of a different color. We've said that we have been primed to view identity in historical ways. So for me as a reader, one of the most important takeaways is that whitewashing has a very strategic history, whereas blackwashing, while certainly not new or benign in terms of strategic purpose, really doesn't have that same history. Can you elaborate a bit based on what you wrote? Whitewashing is a targeted way to take agency from Black characters since minstrelsy. White actors in Blackface created and reinforced stereotypes and caricatures of Black people before film even existed all for white entertainment. And because of the priming paradigm that I mentioned before, whitewashed portrayals of black characters incited violence against black people. And this isn't just me talking without a backing. The film, The Birth of a Nation in 1915 is credited for the revival of the Ku Klux Klan. And we associate the words Jim Crow with slavery and segregation, while its origins come from a form of shuffling that enslaved black people learned when white people outlawed dancing on plantations. Minstrels then co-opted the dance, mimicking it exaggeratedly in blackface to use it as quote-unquote evidence that Black people were unintelligent. So they took something that Black people were so intelligent about creating and turned it into something that, that could credit them as stupid or, or ignorant or whatever. So that history is also the reason why Black people and other people of color are misrepresented and underrepresented in media. So misrepresentation through stereotypes and underrepresentation through historical exclusion 
gives the roles that Black people do have more weight because it's more likely to be viewed in the audience's mind as authentic, which is why representation through Blackwashing was so important for me to study. The whole point of Blackwashing is to put more Black people on screen. It's about being represented through the multiplicity of the Black experience. There's no one way to exist as a Black person, and to colorblind cast a Black person into a role gives the audience a taste of experiencing that. I appreciate that you dismiss the idea that this is reverse racism. Uh, here I'm thinking about the predictable blowback that comes when a character like Ariel from The Little Mermaid, to take another example from your paper, is cast as black. The comparison not only possibly denies better representation, a fictional mermaid can't be black, people insist this is denying representation, but it also plays a kind of both sides do it game that fragile perspectives really like. And again, I just really appreciate how you not only name this, but show how wrong it is in the paper. Casting a black woman to play a fictional mermaid is not the same as an ongoing, institutionalized, and most importantly, explicitly motivated practice of denial, erasure, caricature. People will insist that it is. This is just another kind of fragility in your mind, right? I think you could call it fragility, but given, given the current climate of the United States political sphere in general, and the arguments over whether critical race theory, or to put it more accurately, true U.S. history should be taught in the school systems, I consider it more of a programmed ignorance. Fair. If we don't properly teach kids and even adults how systemic racism is built, it makes sense that those people would see whitewashing and blackwashing as the same thing. People who don't have my educational background and can't access the academia that I used for this research are going to assume that black people are, quote unquote, stealing their characters because going to college is a class privilege that I'm very fortunate to have been able to accomplish. But learning the reason for underrepresentation and misrepresentation of people of color in entertainment, as we are, requires money. So I won't, call, I won't stop you from calling it fragile because outwardly <laughs> it does sound like it is. Yeah. But what I know is not common knowledge, even though I think it should be. One of the things I say a lot, and it is self-surfing as a white man, is that fragility is taught. Agreed. It is taught. White people don't just come up with it individually, the media teaches us it is okay for us to get mad and that it is okay for us to call the police and it's okay for us to trust our instincts, which have been primed. You calling it a kind of strategic form of programming is on point because I, it's, it's out there and it is taught in a whole lot of ways. So I get two really great takeaways from the paper in terms of the argument itself, and I'd just love it if you could update me on anything that I'm missing. The first one is that unlike whitewashing, which has a history in explicitly white supremacist gazing, blackwashing can accomplish really important changes in terms of representation. But if it does so in a way that ignores the history at the heart of white supremacist caricature, it can sort of find its way towards reaffirming these caricatures. You talk about Quisengine's representation in 2014 of Annie, who cannot swim, or how Red's criminality in the Shawshank Redemption can be read as more criminal uh, than illegal behavior exhibited by white protagonist Andy Dufresne. In each case, you do a really good job of arguing that these movies, one, represent the contexts of the stories fairly. Two, that th these representational changes do good work in terms of like making an accomplishment in representation, but also three, they kind of enable racist reads that reaffirm caricatures that have a history in whitewashing. How am I doing so far? Pretty spot on. In terms of the first, the plot doesn't change. And geographically, the story still makes sense with the blackwashed characters. In terms of the second, the anti-racist work they perform is providing the audience with a broader idea of humanity. Whitewashing historically equated whiteness with what is meant to be human, specifically white men. 
Blackwashing gives the audience a visual representation that, that Black people are just as human without changing the narrative of the character. And then finally, what you just described is called intertextual stereotyping. Stereotypes are so built into our memory that we often read them onto characters simply because they are part of a category that has been primed, which in this case is Blackness. The stereotypes that Black people can't swim or are illiterate is imprinted onto 2014's Annie, even though both those things are meant to be a commentary on the deficiencies of the foster care system. Okay, Annie B, your turn. You hear that sign? I don't want to keep anyone for vacation. <laughs> Just get up here. Where's your essay? Up here. And it's more of a performance piece. Here we go. My president... Even if we don't go looking for them, even if they're not baked in there, the same priming research tells us, and based on generations of propaganda, that we're taught to look certain ways. You just already said you hadn't seen 2018's Overlord. Uh, as someone myself who does not like horror movies and who's only studying horror movies for work, this was not easy for me to watch. Three months ago, I was cutting grass in my front yard. A mailman shows up with a letter from the army. No idea where I'm gonna end up. Uh, I, I said, if you like a video game style World War II movie, it's amazing. It's a, a movie that feels like J.J. Abrams made shooter game. There's a lot of soldiers out there. There's only four of us. Find out what's inside that compound. Except in cinematic form, we have World War II paratroopers and gross Nazi zombies all at once. What is this? A thousand year army. These thousand year soldiers. Uh, the other thing we have is a black protagonist played by uh, Jovan Adepo. We have to do this! You know we have to do this, Corporal! I can get us inside! I can! I can get us inside! We can blow the tower from below! We can destroy the fucking labs! and a black sergeant played by Bukim Widbine. Those men are gonna need air support. That support will not make it through Jerry's defenses if we do not get that tower down by 0600. So what do you have to do? Our goddamn job, sergeant! That's right. Your goddamn job. Drop is 90 minutes out. Kurhi! Kurhi! both as members of the famously segregated 101st Airborne. Uh, this is a group that's famously featured in like Band of Brothers and stuff like this. Race is never mentioned in the movie um, and is hotly debated by the audience, as I'm sure you can imagine. You said you haven't seen it, so I'm not going to ask you your thoughts on the film, but I'm wondering if you do have any ideas in terms of what kinds of things you might w look for if you ever decided to do it. Like representationally, do we need a black soldier in the 101st Airborne? And if so, what should or would that character need to do in your mind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand from a filmmaking perspective, taking the time to rewrite a character's arc after the casting takes time, which costs money. However, especially for a period piece, it's hard to say that it makes sense to pretend race had no bearing on the story when my late grandfather, who was part of the World War II effort, would likely have begged to differ. <laughs> But technically, the same could be said of Morgan Freeman's portrayal of Red in The Shawshank Redemption, given that the movie takes place in between 1947 and 1967. 
it's unlikely that Red wouldn't have faced hardships because of his race. And yet during the film, his race isn't a topic of discussion. I'll admit, again, I I can't do horror movies <laughs> for my heart's sake. Then don't watch this one. <laughs> <laughs> but if I did find it in myself to watch the movie, my primary areas to analyze would be, does it make sense for the setting and the geographical era um, for the character to be in this place? Have the film writers neglected to tell the story from the lens of an actual Black person, thereby leaving the character a blank slate for any stereotypes and via priming? And three, does the Blackwash character have any real effect on the story like did it change the narrative in any way to have that character be blackwashed and for four what is the empathic direction of the blackwashed character does it demean others or dehumanize others or is it just meant as an additional portrayal of physical representation for black people on screen it's fascinating because in the beginning of the movie he's very nervous and very passive but he's also in an airplane about to jump into Normandy and the argument is you can see a, a soldier being nervous and passive and it's like yeah but we have generations of being told that black soldiers can't be good soldiers. Mm. I don't know. It's such a fascinating movie. The part of your thesis that we did pull, there were several sections we talked about. One of them was whether or not it made sense representationally, which was the first thing you talked about. We also talked about how if the film, which you said, um, does not recognize blackness on screen, it fails to be anti-racist. Anti-racism is kind of an explicit strategic stance. And if it doesn't take that stance, it's basically just more white storytelling. And we kind of agreed that that is definitely what's happening in this movie. <laughs> It takes about an hour and 15 minutes for him to move the plot. I can get us inside! We can blow the tower from below. We can destroy the fucking labs! If we do this, our odds of walking out of here go down to nearly zero. We pull it off. That walk back's gonna feel a hell of a lot sweeter. And I can lead us straight there. Okay. He basically follows everyone around. He's a private, so I guess that happens. But there's other privates moving the plot. It's it's fairly predictable. It's <laughs> it's an interesting movie, but it is uh, in many, many ways fairly predictable. And the stuff you're pulling is pretty much the same stuff that we said. I will echo, we found articles about black paratroopers. They were told they could not jump into combat, so they instead sent them to fight fire in Oregon. And I'm like, this sounds like an amazing movie. Uh, there were black balloonists at Normandy that suffered casualties that we learned doing our homework for this. Pl plenty of stories, all sorts of good movies out there, just strangely not getting picked up in the same ways. We have to constantly wait for one or two folks who have the resources mm -hmm. to do this every year. Another key takeaway that is also important is that blackwashing can be effective when it speaks to these racial realities in the story more explicitly. In Overlord, right before they jump, a character named Feldman turns to Boyce, which is a depot's character, and says, Hope nothing goes wrong! We both know what the Nazis are going to do to a guy named Rosenfeld. And he's saying this to a black guy in the back of an airplane. And we said how his character has to be like, nope, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because he just cannot represent blackness in the back of this airplane. That's maybe a moment where they could have talked about it in that movie. Mm -hmm. What are some other examples uh, that maybe that you see doing this work? Yeah, if you're referring to counter-stereotyping, um, 
that's like one potential solution that I did mention in the the, the paper. Yeah. My favorite example just in general um, is Claude Steele's portrayal of, of counter-stereotyping. Uh, my aim is to convince you that stereotype threat and social identity threat, these are social psychological phenomenon, but I, I want to convince you that they're important, that they're a big deal in all of our lives, that everybody experiences some form or another of these things and that they uh, play a big role in our lives. They affect who we, who we take on as friends, uh, what regions of the country we feel comfortable living in, what neighborhoods we feel comfortable living in, how we perform in certain areas of performance, academics, athletics, uh, all kinds of things. These phenomena have a big driving effect. And I want to make he explains that a black man walking on a college campus can be viewed by many people as menacing, but the moment he starts whistling the music of a European classical musician, Vivaldi, people immediately find the man more approachable and less scary. So my issue with counter-stereotyping is that it's often the opposite of Black stereotypes by Eurocentric standards which is why I don't believe blackwashing is the ultimate solution. It pushes the notion of the black exception instead of truly realizing how multiplicitous blackness is. Just like white people can play the roles of a bank robber or a paratrooper and nobody immediately sees anything in the person like walking down the street. Black people should be able to do the same thing in movies, which is why I really love Jordan Peele as a director. Yeah. I've yet to see Nope, I know. so no spoilers. No, no, same. But... <laughs> 2017's Get Out and 2019's Us are precisely how I think Black cinema and Black entertainment can truly move forward. It really represents what Blackness can be in movies. It's not any particular thing that you're expecting of this family or of this person, but you really do get sort of the Black experience because it's coming from a lens of authentic Blackness without any of the dehumanizing elements. And I genuinely wish that I had more time to research this project because during my undergrad experience, once I got to this point, it was about time to wrap up the research and get into like really writing. Mm -hmm. um, so I really didn't have much time to dissect these movies, but it was phenomenal to sort of see the difference between blackwashing and an authentic black written movie. It can be so creative and it can be so incisive and it can be very subtle. Mm -hmm. It can be incredibly subtle. Jordan Peele's work is exceptional. One of the risks we run is that we keep naming the same people over and over because Hollywood gives us such limited choices True. of the people that we get to talk about. You know, the work that, that he does as a comic, the work he does as a horror director, yeah. it can change stories in ways that are genuinely more entertaining. They are just genuinely better. White supremacist stories are not simply violent. They're just boring. They're just boring stories. <laughs> it's better. the same story every time. That's why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't put you put this one in the in the questionnaire. So if you want to punt, we can punt. But um, do you think we're ever going to be able to like see through this priming stuff? One of the questions we keep really digging into on the show is because of associations of like blackness with like monkeys and things we saw dawn of the planet of the apes are you ever going to be able to see a monkey on screen and have it just be a monkey the loza article that i sent you i think is very sympathetic to what i'm hearing really hard to do that almost impossible given this history of priming that we have and that is unfortunate but we can't be ignorant of that am i overstating this or do you think i'm on point i think 
the the thing is, I think it would be possible if we were educating people on the fact that these yeah. stereotypes exist in movies, but we're not. We're just telling them that everything is fine because we had a black president and Martin Luther King yeah. walked on <laughs> on the yeah. on the link at the Lincoln Memorial. We've been taught to believe that racism is over. So we're not recognizing any of the historical racism in the movies that we watch purely because it's not taught to us. Like I, I know this stuff because I went to school for it. I literally had to pursue Africana studies in college in order to to know that this is something that I've been seeing all my life. But if we're not going to teach people about it, we're never going to get past the priming effects because we don't recognize that, that right. the priming effect is happening. And when we learn about it, we just learn base, like it's just bad. Well, yeah, it's racist, but everything's racist. And, and your paper really details it to give people the tools they need to know what to look for. And I do think it's true. It is deeply unfortunate that so much of this is blocked behind the paywalls of tuition, but your thesis is free. And that is what is so cool about research. It is hard to read in academic terms. There are lots of people who will see this as totally incomprehensible because it's so full of jargon. And yet I read it as like an exceptionally clear, concise and straightforward argument. And that's hard. But, you know, what I like hopefully about this podcast is we can try to find ways to explain it. It sounds like the work you do really starts applying this. I just really want to encourage people. It's called Whitewashing v. Blackwashing by Alyssa M. Smith, Structural Racism and Anti-Racist Praxis in Hollywood Cinema. You can find it for free through the College of Worcester Open Works, um, and it will arm you with the specifics. So you can not just know your, your movies are bad. Yes, they're bad. But, but how are they bad? And why are they bad? And what kind of stories really would unsettle that? When we know the way whiteness gazes at blackness, and then you go watch Get Out. How are Miss Rosie doing? She's good. She's driving. Can I talk to him? No. I'd like to talk to him, please. <sighs> hold on, hold on. Hi, Rod. Okay. You know you picked the wrong guy, right? Oh, yeah, of course I know that. This is all just a ploy to get to you. It's <laughs> okay. not too late for us. Okay, get your own girl. You told a manager because you never take my advice. Like what? Like, don't go to a white girl parent's house. This, it's just brilliant. There's so many layers of smartsiness going on there. Are you reading, listening to, or watching anything right now that really makes you think that you want to share with our audience? Uh, yes, this is quite a jump from uh, whitewashing and blackwashing. It's not Good. directly related, <laughs> but yeah. if you haven't watched The Boys on Amazon Prime. The greatest superhero team the world's ever seen, The Seven. Is there anything I can help you with? I'm not gonna piss you about, Chewie. I heard what happened to Robin. They were my fitness on the front page. That's where me and the boys are coming. I never wanted to ever be over. I spank the bastards when they get out of line. I highly recommend it. Is a not so covert commentary on capitalism and oligarchy in the United States. Yeah. But through the lens of superheroes. So you get both the escapism and the real world discussions without it taking you out of the narrative. And I will say if gore is the reason that you swear off of horror, this will be one to keep your distance from. I can't stop. I can't stop. Robin! But I really do like enjoy it as a story because it highlights a lot of relevant issues through an almost entire cast of morally gray or evil characters. Oh, interesting. It's getting so much play. It's getting a lot of talk right now. So many anti-heroes and things going on. Yes. It's almost like we realized Superman was a liar all along. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I write a lot about Superman. Uh, so this is one I've been meaning to look at. Well, thank you very much, Alyssa. Alyssa Smith is a queer black woman with her bachelor's degree in Africana studies from the College of Worcester. She hails from the unceded native land of the Potawatomi and Peoria tribes. She's fascinated by storytelling and passionate about bettering society for people of color. And so she is now the program manager for Roots, Wounds, Words, a literary arts revolution to provide affordable literary arts education for any storytellers of color. That is rootswoundswords.org. To learn more, go there. Check it out. Alyssa, thank you so much for taking your time today. Thank you so much for the invite. It was great to be here. This has been Dirt Maps, a tributary to The Real War Project, a podcast about the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema. If you would like to find more Dirt Maps, you can look for The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L War Project, wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts. You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs. Redwood Sound Labs.